That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Michelle Fobega, naturopathic doctor. And I'm Dr. David Miller, ND, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you. This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health. This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well. This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan. This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting all the pieces together. This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of healthcare. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it. And we want you to know it. Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you should know about. Welcome to another episode of That Naturopathic Podcast. Dr. David Miller, ND, Dr. Michelle Pobega, ND, what's up? Hey, pal, how are you? Good, good. Good. Uh, so today we're going to talk about some, we're going to talk about three specific labs uh, that we think we can do better, have a lot of merit. That we, like just in general, we could do better by our patients with labs. So I think the thing is, is there's a lot of labs that we like to see, and we would order that medical doctors also order, but then there are some key parameters that based on parameters that how, how medical doctors are, I guess, allowed to order labs that they seem a little bit limited as to what they order. And I have often gotten pushback when I've sent clients to their doctors to ask for more comprehensive lab work. And the doctor will say, you don't need that. Um, that's kind of what they say to the client. But I think it's also because if that initial marker is not abnormal, then the Ministry of Health or whatever the restrictions are does not necessarily allow them to take the next steps and continue ordering further labs. Am I correct in saying that, Dave? Well, mostly I would just say qualifier that this is pretty Ontario-centric uh, conversation with labs, although it may be different <laughs> in some provinces and on Canada, I would say it's probably similar. This would probably not be the case if you see a functional sort of medicine right. doctor in the U.S. Or but that's whatever, typically so. the case. They have to start with what the, the the first step, and if there's nothing weird about the first step, they 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 are basically. Yeah, I don't want to say there's merit in that. You can maybe, understand, but maybe they yeah. don't move forward, right? And I guess there's that. merit in some structure and <laughs> logarithm or algorithms and stuff like that. There's merit in it for sure. But we're just here to point out that sometimes there's also merit. Restrictive. There's also merit in certain things being tested a little bit more thoroughly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think yeah. um, when I think a key thing here at the beginning, just to say too, is like we're not talking about some, like I think some, let's call it some whack testing that some naturopaths do. I think it's cool. Like, and some of it will actually not be whack someday because, you know, the parameters or line of what is acceptable science always changes. Const so, science constantly changing guys it's not religion <laughs> yeah so let's um let's just sort of say colloquially or or whatever what we're not talking about whack tests today we're talking about conventional labs that we just do a little differently or we do a little bit more comprehensively or in the context of other labs um so it's not we're not talking about like you know wacky uh tests that you learned about from tiktok yeah okay I think that's Thank important you. to say at the beginning here because it um, it's really we're doing a, a somewhat uh, 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 flexible interpretation of conventional lab tests rather than some crazy. Yeah, it's just stuff. really just 
functional pretty simple isn't it functional information that is that can be important for the foundations of giving good care for a client basically like we're not asking for anything wild I think, yeah yeah i think i think like so there's like three That's things that I'm dave there's three things that dave and i have come to want to discuss today when it comes to lab parameters where we feel there could be a we could be a little bit more investigative so that we can get a little bit more of the fuller picture of what's going on and there have been times where dave and i get information from doctors and they don't run maybe some of those extra tests and we run it independently and we find the abnormalities and that's why we think that these three areas um are worth investigating a little bit longer just for for better patient care right because that's really the ultimate goal and we're not and like 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 dave was saying we're not asking for anything wildly crazy there's just some simple things that yeah. don't actually cost a lot of money either so we're not sending your, you know, dried placenta away to get it encapsulated, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Yeah. Like, and again, I'm not trashing that. I'm just saying there's varying levels of what is considered normal and all that, and this is pretty normal stuff. So I, uh, why don't we I tell? Think, sorry, sorry, and I think just based on like some of the most common health concerns that are coming into the office, these are That's not key. also these are also not outrageous asks. You know what I mean? I feel like this really these these particular lab parameters really do help understand some of the actually a lot about the most chronic common conditions that are coming in that are plaguing north americans i feel like these are really important things to understand they're widely applicable to the vast majority of anyone who you're going to see in sort of chronic care management and then actually in in uh thinking about them at least two of them of the three and per, you could almost you could almost uh say all three of them are involved in energy uh and uh that's something i've it's funny like i i work near a nuclear uh power plant hmm. um and uh it's taken me i think hmm. 12 13 years of practice to realize how important energy is and hmm. i don't mean like just the you know esoteric energy nucle- well, I don't mean that, and I I don't just mean the the nuclear uh, power plant where, where I'm living, but because that's I mean if if we don't have power, uh, it's not good. And if you work in the power like energy sector, you usually are in a that's a valuable sector to be in, uh, in terms of like economic financial reality of life. But you know what? It's a very valuable sector to be in when you're trying to take care of chronic disease or chronic uh, issues because invariably, I would say, if you can make oh, there's always exceptions but almost invariably you could say if someone has more energy they're going to do more good things because mm. good things usually take more effort than you know sitting there and smoking dope and playing video games and drinking yourself into oblivion in the basement you know i guess you could do that um but that you, you know good things take some effort right yeah yeah so an effort means energy and so a lot mm. of times I spend my time not telling people what to do, all these new different things to do. It's more like, hey, let's get you the energy so you can do the things you already know you need to do or want to do. You just don't have the the capacity energy to do it. Yeah, that makes sense. I hope so. I said it, so I hope it makes some sense. Okay, <laughs> Michelle, tell them what the three are because some people won't listen beyond, beyond that if you don't tell them what the three things are. Okay. Okay. That was a good lead up though. Um, We want to talk about how running ferritin in isolation doesn't necessarily tell us the whole story. 
Um, and we want to run some things to check your inflammatory markers. And we'll talk about those are, we want to talk about how it's important to run a full thyroid panel and not just TSH and how you can catch things before they become bigger problems and Let's how, today. yeah. And how, uh, doing your fasting glucose and your HbA1c is helpful, but incomplete if you are not running your fasting insulin, cause there could be insulin resistance running behind the scenes before those numbers are dramatically changed like to create concern. <laughs> so those are the three areas we kind of want to touch on a little bit. Um, and we'll just yeah. kind of break them down a little bit more. Go. Uh, I want to start with the glucose one if possible. Cause I yeah, do this go. a lot. Yeah, yeah. I recommend, I recommend this a lot because so many people are metabolically unhealthy and this yep. is such a big deal. So many people are not regulating their blood sugars and even, but here's the thing too. I'll even see people who's like HbA1c or fasting glucose. The ideal for both of those is between five to 5.5. That is the optimal range. And I see people at 5.7, 5.8, 5.9 for the HbA1c, which means their blood sugar for the last three months has not been well regulated. However, the doctors don't point it out because for some reason, the breakdown of reference ranges only says above six is now risk of prediabetes. And you're kind of like, no, it's it's still not good enough. So I already find a lot of people are kind of going underserviced because their numbers are still not quite in the optimal range. But then I have caught a lot of people whose blood sugar or HbA1c looks decent, but they are struggling with with weight or they are struggling with PCOS or they are struggling with all sorts of stuff, brain fog, low energy, you know, waking up in the middle of the night, whatever, um, which can all be blood sugar regulated. And uh, I run their insulin and insulin at fasting should ideally be 50 or less according to what I have learned. Uh, and I think even less than 70, some people say, but I heard 50 is more like the sweet spot. And I will catch people who are at like an 80 to a 90 to a hundred. And then when you run their fasting glucose and their fasting insulin through a home IR calculator, they are in a insulin resistant state or they're getting there and it, they're not in the optimal insulin, you know, operations, uh, values. So that is already, a sign of metabolic dysfunction. And I remember going to a medical doctor. I went to a walk-in clinic to start getting some just general stuff done for myself and for my partner. And I was sitting in the, in the office with them and I already ran my fasting insulin a few months prior. So I already knew what it was, but for my partner, I was trying to request it. There is diabetes and different things within his familial line. So we wanted to be thorough. And I asked the doctor if they could run fasting insulin. And he said, no. And I said, can I ask why? And he says, well, it wouldn't change the course of action. And I was, I didn't say anything because I was like, whatever, but I disagree because if you catch metabolic insufficiency early, it does change the course of action, period, end of story. You can start preventing something before it becomes a prigger problem. That would be my approach. What a crazy idea to try and Wild. something. Yeah. And I get a lot of doctors when I, when I used to, I used to have my patients try to request this from the doctors and every single time, every time the doctor says, you don't need that. And they would yep. refuse, they would flat out refuse to run it. And in a, in a, in a society and in a culture where insulin resistance is a wild epidemic right now, I feel like we're yep. doing a huge disservice to uh, the population. Agreed. That was my soapbox. I get really heated about this topic. <laughs> well, it's, it's hard not to. Uh, and, and it's a great, you know, you know, we're going to talk about inflammatory um, markers too, which costs, I think, three bucks each or something. I think really, so. They're, they're really inexpensive. They're super cheap. 
Um, I inadvertently spent almost that much on a, a venti americano from um, Starbucks recently. Yeah, yeah. Thought I was getting I mean, rewards, but if you uh, also, I paid the, the full other... price, and it's the same as the two markers. To, yeah. to me, yeah. Okay, the coffee's good, but the markers are pretty important. So what when I was going to comes... say about the markers with the mm -hmm. inflammation is that uh, they're oftentimes downstream from insulin. Yeah. So if you have if you have insulin resistance, it's so it's good that you brought this one up first. If you have insulin resistance, it can be pro-inflammatory. So if you have the non-specific marker of dysregulation, which is inflammation, it's just like heat in the system. Well, the first thing I usually do if someone also at the same time has a metabolic resistance, insulin resistance, is fix the insulin resistance. And then sometimes the inflammation really goes down. I've seen that happen personally. And what I find is like if we were to run fasting glucose and fasting insulin independently as naturopaths, mm -hmm. it comes to like, I don't know, like $35 or something like that, which Built is up. also nothing, right? People will spend $500 on a fresh haircut and, but you know, like $30 is not that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. However, what I've also noticed that for us to do the, the two hour insulin glucose challenge, it costs around the same amount. Now it does require, and I do this for more of my clients who have known metabolic dis dysfunction. So I can show them what their insulin is and glucose is at fasting. And then once they drink the disgusting, gnarly glucose drink, and I'm sorry for putting my patients through this, but it's, it's, it's nice to see functionally how your body responds to do the 30 minute mark, to do it again at one hour and to do it again at two hours to see like, does your body overcompensate with insulin? Does your blood sugar spike? Does it come back into a state of balance within a, a decent time frame or an expected time frame? All of that's also very important. So if I have clients who are willing to do that, to, to make sure to allocate time, because you'll have to be at the, the lab for two hours to be able to allocate for this. Um, then I often encourage them to do this and not just the fasting insulin glucose. You just get more information for literally the same price, <laughs> almost exactly the same price, which is why that's not? Cool. Yeah. That's what I've maybe figured I should out. Do it more. Yeah. I work for, I, yeah, maybe I should, I should do that one more. And just I find, I find it's just so interesting to see. And then you talk to people and you're like, okay, by two we hours, can find other stuff. Right. You can find other stuff that you're that you're doing with that test too. So that's cool. Yeah. Only, it's two hour test, right? It's a two hour, yeah. So it's we'll fasting to two hours. <laughs> yeah. You're something, a phone, a book, or whatever, yeah. listen to a podcast for goodness sakes. But you know, because not everyone's willing to get a glucose monitor and see how their body responds to glucose. I haven't even done that for goodness sake. You know what I mean? Like I probably should. It'd probably be very interesting to see how my body responds to things and tweak my tweak my diet to ensure that it's metabolically sound for my needs um as a learning tool however if you're not capable of doing that and not willing to track your glucose on a day-to-day -day basis at least getting this two-hour insulin glucose challenge tells you functionally how things are showing up for you which is pretty informative and great yeah, i wonder you know what you're, i was thinking of when you start talking about it you're gonna find uh you might find that rebound hypoglycemia too that's it that's neat I've okay. seen some, I had one person who like dropped wildly low at, at two hours. And I was like, Hey, oh, well, we got to do some stuff there. So yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's number one. Yeah. I think, what I do think you got you, for number two? I think you locked that one in pretty good. I think you want to just go into the inflammatory stuff since that was a good segue. Yeah. Fer the ferritin CRP ESR. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so ferritin is a, a marker of long-term iron storage. It's an iron storage protein. Uh, so it's sort of like your long-term savings. If you think of, you know, um, iron 
you know, it's not your cash in hand. It's sort of your long-term savings. Mm-hmm. Your body's sort of storing it away. Um, remember, we have no way of getting rid of, no controlled way of uh, getting rid of iron. This is really important to know when you're trying to understand what the body does with iron. So um, anyway, we we store it when we have a surplus. But big, big but with only one T. Uh, there is also the idea of ferritin being a acute phase reactant, which is nerdy words for it goes up when you're inflamed. Yeah. So, you know, a lot, I see a lot of, I would say the vast majority of labs I see, the doctor has not requested ferritin. Sometimes they run ferritin, which is great. And so that's like a step up because mm-hmm. they've run, say, you know, white blood cells, red blood cells, hemoglobin mm-hmm. and all that. So they get some idea of, you know, some idea of erythropoiesis and all that. Uh, however, they don't often do ferritin. Then they do ferritin in some cases, which is great if it's low. <laughs> so if they've only, if they've only ran run ferritin uh, and it's like low, it's bottom of the barrel, it's like, you know, eight or five or something like 20. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, then it's okay. What happens what happens though when you have ferritin levels that are sort of just maybe just suboptimal, say uh, starting in the 40, 50s range, but the patient is really, really tired, cold all the time, you know, like they've got all the signs of maybe iron deficiency. They're, you know, they've got some cardiovascular risk factors, blah, blah, blah. What do you do then? Well, your ferritin looks normal. So at, at first cursory glance, everything looks fine. However, you need to keep in mind that ferritin is going to go up when you're inflamed. So what do, what do Michelle and I, and probably a lot of naturopaths do? We run ESR and CRP, which are two very different uh, markers for inflammation, which like we said, cost just over uh, what it costs to get a venti Americano. Um, and it's well worth it because now when we have run the ferritin and it says, okay, you got you got all the signs of iron deficiency, but your ferritin says you're normal, but it says 80 or whatever, but your inflammation markers are like your CRP is like seven and your ESR is like 12 or 15. Then we know we have to qualitatively take away a quantity of your ferritin because some of your ferritin number is actually just there because you're inflamed. So your true sort of healthy iron storage is actually much less than yeah. what it appears on the paper. So that's why running ferritin in the absence of inflammatory markers is 100% a no-go in my world. It's incomplete. You know what I've also noticed is that um, white blood cells, I did a I did a lab value <clears throat> course with Dr. Dr. Dixon Tom years ago, and he said optimal is 5 to 7.5 for white blood cell count, where the reference range is like 4 to 11. And anything above an eight is considered an inflammatory response or a marker of inflammation. So that's also something I look for, especially mm-hmm. if like uh, if uh, ESR and CRP wasn't run. I'm looking at like red blood cell production, hemoglobin levels. And I've seen this where I'm like, hey, your hemoglobin looks like it's in the tanker, but your ferritin levels look okay. Like something's not adding up. Yep. <laughs> and then this, this person's like, I feel tired. And I was like, okay. And your the hemoglobin levels may not be outside of quote unquote reference range that the doctor's flagging them and having a discussion to my clients about it, but they're not where they need to be for your body to show up for you the way you want them to. So anything less than like 130, I start to be a little bit suspicious about your hemoglobin levels. 
uh, personally. Um, yeah, that's around so, the same ballpark for me. And then like, if you have symptoms of fatigue and hair falling out and sallow skin and all, all the stuff and your ferritin levels look decent, I'm kind of like, is it though? Like, I think yeah. we need to understand a little bit You're more. Eating so ice. I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I, yeah, yeah. What is that called? And dirt. <laughs> yeah. And dirt. <laughs> Yeah. So I just feel like there's something is off and it is worth, like, like we said, they, they each cost three bucks. It's really not yeah. breaking the bank for you or health Canada's uh, spend for our tax dollars. So I feel like it's not that big of an ask. And frankly, a lot of people with metabolic dysfunction, a lot of people with chronic North American type diseases are usually diseases with some degree of inflammation at the root. So it, it wouldn't necessarily be a big ask to run those either. Mm -hmm. What did you, uh, I'm just a little quick segue. What did you, and, and we'll get back to it, but it's related to what you're talking about. I just have a case from today where mm. uh, the white blood cells, what do you say was, was uh, optimal or normal? Uh, five to 7.5, according to Dr. Dixon, Tom. Okay. So, uh, for, for Canadian, for Canadian, you know, yeah, quantities. ranges and and uh, reference range units. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I've got a, a patient here from today, and and I'll bring this person up mm. uh, for the next for the third part. But interestingly enough, it it applies for the inflammation part. So, this person's inflammation didn't show up really high with ESR. It was only four millimeters per hour, and I I usually start to say maybe five or six is my yeah um is my sort of cutoff to say there's two, some I information two, going two on. to five two to five is good yeah. anything above that there's so a little around, bit too much around the same mm -hmm. and then her crp was definitely elevated it was 3.3 milligrams per liter and i see anything above one correct me too okay so so we're aligned that way <laughs> um but you know what's very interesting is her white blood cells which are normal i i put them i i use like their uh green, yellow, red analogy yeah. sort of for labs. So mm -hmm. I put yellow because her white blood cells were 9.9 9, uh, and the range is up to 11. And I was like, mm, yeah, 9.9. 9. And I would and look at you the yeah, breakdown of her white blood cells. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Then I look at neutrophils and she's got, she's at the absolute max for neutrophils at 7.5. Uh, so some kind of infection possibly. Or or organ infiltration, which which will bring us like organ uh, specific inflammation. Mm -hmm. So infiltration of neutrophils into the organ. Uh, so high so, neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio is something to look for there. So what would you say? High neutrophil to lymphocyte is infiltration into the organ. It, it as it in like be, it, yeah. mic like microbial infiltration into organs. No, as in the neutrophils are are getting into mm. the they're going into the organ and, and sort of damaging it with oxidative stress and all I that. See. And got it. She is a clear picture of um uh thyroid disease. I see. So here's yeah. something from my notes from Dr. Dixon Tom. Hi. Um so so five to seven point five is optimal, but high, especially over eight point five, is an independent independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease and signifies a strong inflammatory process. So that's what yeah. he wrote about white blood okay, cell count. So that looks, looks about right. So just FYI. Um, 
And I loved this lab course. I refer back to it all the time. And her neutrophils are so also high neutrophils uh, could be acute localized and generalized bacterial infection, childhood diseases, folate deficiency, chronic infections, especially with a decreased white blood cell count. So with chronic, then it might have been depleted immune system, but still, which is interesting, or just inflammation is another one for that. Mm -hmm. So anyways, just that's, that's from my notes from DT. So ferritin, ferritin in the absence of CRP and ESR is only useful if it's low. If it's normal yeah. or high, then you have to uh, you have to have it at the same time as CRP and ESR to have a real indication of it. Now, do you do we need to beat that one anymore? I don't think do we, so. That I think was pretty it's good. good. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Uh, that was a great segue that patient into uh, autoimmune uh, thyroid disease. Yeah. Um, which she has. And so she's got this probably uh, infiltration of uh, neutrophils into the thyroid. Her generalized inflammation status is somewhat high, but I wouldn't say crazy, crazy high. Um, and her ferritin has gone up from like single digits to 32. Mm. Um, yeah. So again, but with her inflammatory markers, mm -hmm. how much of that 32 do we have to sort of qualitatively take away yeah. because it's due to inflammation, which is sort of yeah. proven otherwise. So what are the other labs that I I ran on her, Michelle? You probably know. You ran a full thyroid panel. I did. Which would include TSH, which is the first step your doctors take. Some doctors will still run T4, but most of them will only run TSH as a preliminary screen, period. Mm -hmm. Um, but T4, which is your inactive thyroid hormone that circulates and then as needed is converted to the active hormone because your body's thyroid function is meant to be modulating. So it's supposed to be able to react and respond and adjust based on what's happening within the body. T3 is your active hormone that elicits the thyroid activity that we want and desire. And then, uh, in a thyroid panel, you also have reverse T3, which I think we talked about it with Dr. Paul Anderson, how when uh, something becomes chronic, your body almost goes into like a survival state and it almost shunts more of that into T3 because it can't continue to spout out energy and exhaust itself. Um, so reverse T3 tends to get prioritized in chronic conditions. And then it also includes uh, two types of antibodies, anti-TPO and anti-TG. Uh, um, and that would be a full and proper assessment of thyroid function. Yeah. Yeah. So for her, uh, it is interesting because she would have been, she would have passed with flying colors, the the basic TSH evaluation. If I look at her numbers here, her TSH was uh, an enviable 2.16 milli okay. IUs per liter. That's pretty good. I usually say between one to two, give or take 0.5. Like I still give a bit of a 0.5 buffer to be like, you're okay. But the, I think ideal optimal is between one and two on average. I, yeah. I thought anything hovering around one to two and a half, I'm, I'm okay with it's probably mm -hmm. not where you need to focus, but I mean, and again, it's going to, and it's going to fluctuate time. and it's going to exactly. fluctuate based on where she is in her the, cycle, based on stress. There's a ton of things so. that changes. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so that's why, you know, a TSH is like a, a, a still picture in time. You know, it doesn't yeah. tell you the, maybe the week before it was much higher and, and, and it's coming down. So I, I actually wonder in her case, because her, her thyroglobulin antibodies are elevated and so too are TPO antibodies and her free T4 is 
high normal or very replete, you could say at least. And mm-hmm. her free T3 is very high normal or replete. Now, so pre- prior to this test, maybe her thyroid was sending out quite a stimulus, right? Or her, sorry, her brain was sending out quite a stimulus to her thyroid. Right. And it produced that T4 and T3. Right. And therefore it brought down her thyroid stimulating hormone because it got those numbers up. So the, yeah. the free T4 and T3 are good enough that why would the uh, brain keep sending the signal to the thyroid to stimulate more? So um, that's why the antibodies are really, really helpful uh, to understand. And like she's got dry skin. She's tired as hell. Um, what else? She's cold all the time. Like, come on, man. You know, you got to look at the patient too. Yeah. So labs are great, yeah. but you got to look at them in the context of the signs and symptoms we've said that about a million times and i find that um women in general tend to be more prone to those types of symptoms and to hypothyroidism type symptoms whether it's subclinical hypothyroidism hashimoto's thyroiditis some other form of hypothyroidism um but antibodies can be elevated I think I I even heard up to even like 10 years before your TSH levels might be affected enough to show a thyroid dysfunction, but they could be in the background, just kind of like affecting thyroid health, which is Mm -hmm. wild, which, which is, which is also why I think this gets missed a lot or this particular condition gets missed until it gets much more severe and again, this is an opportunity to be more proactive and preventative. I often recommend women to do a full thyroid panel at least once every two years because things a lot can change in two years. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think that it's always good to just run that to ensure antibodies are not being wildly activated and causing a muck behind the scenes. I like it. But, you know, calm, calm call me crazy for thinking about being proactive about people's health call you crazy for other reasons not that one thanks dave i'm not even going to argue <laughs> with that because i know it's true <laughs> uh... but uh but yeah i and i've caught and i've caught this like you where i've run the full thyroid panel and antibodies are elevated and i was like maybe they don't have full hashimoto's thyroiditis or whatever but we've caught some sort of inflammatory autoimmune immune dysregulatory thing happening and if we can nip that in the bud or get a hold of that sooner than later man we we can help save somebody's quality of life and give them like validate this poor woman like today to validate her her experience so she goes to the doctor and she gets her tsa oh you're fine i'm not fine (laughs) yeah i'm exhausted yeah so so validating Labs can be nice and validating um, and hopefully actionable too. I don't know why, but I just thought of this. Have you seen these memes on Instagram? On Instagram, You're not on Instagram very much, but there's these things where it's somebody's funeral. There's a video at someone's funeral and, and it's from the perspective of the person that's deceased. And it says, my doctor comes to my funeral. So we checked your labs and everything seems to be normal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh get medical doctors but a lot of times this is a common patient complaint when people come to see naturopaths they're like listen i feel like garbage but my doctor says my labs are normal and yeah. they're and and then patients are still at a loss 
without any solutions or without any understanding as to why. Um, And that's why doing that extra little bit of steps, those extra little steps with some of these lab markers can be of great value. Yeah. So, yeah. But anyways. Well, funny meme. And I hope that this podcast was of great value with the three, um, the three, three, not the three, three pretty important um, labs that we can either look at in the context of other labs, patient signs and symptoms, uh, big picture, and just Mm -hmm. do a little bit more thorough job. I think we'd catch a lot of, a lot of chronic uh, disease contributors and, and and would validate a lot of people's experience and help people with some energy so that then they could do the stuff that they they want to do. We don't always need to tell them to do more stuff. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Closing context, notes. For, context is that no, good? Just context is good. We need context for labs, right? Yeah, it's not just a singular number. Everything has to be in context, meaning comparing it with other labs and seeing what the bigger picture is. Um, putting it and knowing the limitations of symptoms and exactly so context is always very important when it comes to assessing somebody's health and and how to best move forward from that and that's the purpose of us being a little bit more thorough with our lab testing part of it all right sounds good catch you next week